Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, will you follow me to Romans chapter 12? If you don't have your Bibles, hopefully you have a digital device that has a Bible on it. And if you don't have either, hopefully you have it memorized. So Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13 will be our text today. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you once again for this opportunity that we have to be in your house, for the privilege we have, Lord, of fellowshipping with brothers and sisters in Christ and ultimately the privilege of coming to you and worshiping you and ascribing to you the worth that is due. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we have come into this place that you are working in our hearts, that you're opening our ears that you're causing our mind to be able to comprehend and perceive the truth of your word, that it may become that implanted word in the inner being that impacts how we live in this world that is around us. And so this morning, Lord, use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as you remember, we have traversed from chapters 1 through 11 to chapter 12, chapters 1 through 11, primarily dealing with the doctrine of salvation. Paul labored hard over those 11 chapters to lay this foundation of God's righteousness apart from the law by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone. And now we've come to this place where Paul says, in light of this redeeming, regenerative work in the life of a believer because you've come to faith in Christ, because you've bowed the knee to Christ, this is what your life ought to reflect in the world. And so Paul told us first, we need to not be conformed, right? The song we had at the beginning, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That starts when we come to faith in Christ and it continues through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us and uses God's word to begin to shape us and to mold us more into what the character of Christ is in this world and how we ought to live in light of that. And then he told us we ought to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And that was our reasonable, our logical act of spiritual service or worship, if you will. And now Paul's telling us, I think, we learned last week that 
He's given, God has given us in the Holy Spirit, every believer, a gift, a grace gift to be used for the kingdom of God. And if you remember, Paul told us, if we have these gifts, let us use them. And then I think Paul is beginning to tell us today in our text what it looks like for believers to begin to live in light of the giftedness and the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, how that would cause us to interact with one another, in particular here in our text today in the household of faith among believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, it doesn't exclude other people, but the primary focus, I think, in the context today has to do with believers But we ought to also show these things to those who are strangers, as we'll see in the end. And then Paul's going to begin to unfold for us what it looks like for us to live in light of the gospel in this world that is around us as we continue through these next few chapters in uh, this second half of the book of Romans. So today, uh, to borrow borrow a phrase from uh, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, today we come to the place where the rubber meets the road. Uh, This is the practical application of what it ought to look like for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to unfold for us through three primary thoughts, I think, through three primary truths, uh, what it ought to look for, uh, like for us as believers to interact with one another in particular as those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the three main headings we're going to look at today are going to be verses 9 through 10. We're going to look at the ethic of Christian love. Then secondly, in verses 11 through 12, we're going to look at the ethic of Christian service. And then in verse 13, we're going to look at the ethic of Christian charity. So let's begin by looking at this ethic of Christian love, this this structure, this, this foundational principle of what Christian love ought to look like. And there are those who read this portion of the scripture and they see love as the umbrella that all of, I'm a, all of what we're about to read and what we're about to talk about fits under. And I think that is rightly so, that love is this umbrella of how all of these things fit together. And I think as we unfold this, we'll see that that's a primary theme in this paragraph. And I think it ultimately uh, is, is the primary fundamental uh, reality that ought to drive who we are as believers. After all, as we'll see later on in this text and through some cross-references, it is by way of love that we actually fulfill the holy law of God. And after all, Jesus summarized that for us, didn't he? Matthew chapter 22, he says, hey, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And we'll see a little bit later on uh, in a cross-reference in Romans chapter 13 that Paul, in fact, says that it's through this ethic of love that you fulfill the law of God. So let's look at this ethic of love. In verses 9 and 10, listen to what Paul... Now, Paul uses in this passage... A little grammar for you. He uses in this passage nine participles. 
Now, these participles, usually participles in the English, we put ing on the end of a word to make it a participle. Uh, most of the time, participles have inherent with them this idea of continuing action. It's not just a one-time event in your life. It is, it is a way of life, if you will. And I think all of these participles have that element in them. Uh, not one uh, straight-out verb. They're all participles. But the other side of that coin is that these participles and the way that Paul uses them, they bear the weight of an imperative. An imperative is a command. So they bear the weight of a command in the participial form as Paul is using them uh, there. So we're going to look at these nine participles that make up this structure of these, this paragraph that we look at today. And so Paul says uh, in the outset, in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing partiality. So the first thing I thought when we read this passage or when I read this passage is that true Christian love is genuine. That's what Paul says. Let love be genuine. And really, the idea behind this uh, word uh, genuine is, or this phrase really, is the word we would get the English word hypocrisy from. Uh, and it has in it this idea of Greek plays where you would have these actors get on the stage and they would go through their dialogue, their monologue or whatever it was, but they would put those masks in front of their face. You ever seen that on television where these, they would put the mask in front of their face and they would carry out these plays and they would pretend to be someone that they're not while they're in their play. Uh, not unlike acting today, they just don't wear masks. They just get up there in their face and they, they pretend to be someone they're not. And so it's the idea, don't pretend to be someone you're not. Don't put on a mask of love and hypocrisy, but let it be true love that comes from a truly redeemed heart that God, the love of God, you remember, <coughs> excuse me, that passage in the scripture where Paul told us that God has shed his love abroad in your heart. Let it be out of that love that God has poured out in your heart that we share the love of Christ and we share love with those that are around us. Don't be hypocritical in our love. Don't put on a show or be fake in our love. It ought to be true and genuine love. But let me tell you something. Who else in the world ought to show genuine love, in particular for brothers and sisters in Christ, but for humanity in general, than those who have been loved by God. None of us deserve God's love, do we? Not a one of us. We deserve God's wrath. But God in his grace and his mercy in Christ Jesus has poured out his love in Christ in our hearts. And we of all people ought to be most loving. And now when I'm preaching to you, guess what? I've got not just four fingers pointing back at me. I've got all my fingers pointing back at me when I talk about this issue, right? We, we must be, including the preacher up here, work on this idea of loving uh, one another, loving the brotherhood and loving our neighbor as ourself. And if, if you have your Bibles, I mentioned that Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, So because Paul reminds us, in this fundamental concept. It is through this godly, Christ-like love that we fulfill the law of God. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses, or excuse me, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 
and 9. Listen to what Paul says, and we'll get here in, in a week or two. Uh, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Now, if we just stop there, we might not have a clear understanding of what Paul is talking about because we might think of the law in a manner of aspect. But Paul is talking about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. How do I know? Look what he says in verse 9. For the commandments... You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And love, he goes on to say, does no wrong to a neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We ought to be people who love one another in a genuine, heartfelt way. Not fake facade, you know. How do, how do we do it in, in the South? Right? We, we, we might not like you. We might not be able to stand you. But if you come up to us, we're going to treat you like your family, right? We're going to treat you just like you're our best friend for a moment. And then when you leave, we'll talk about you behind your back. Now, how we do it, right? In the South? Not that kind of love. We need to be true, genuine love for one another. And, and, and other places in the Bible verifies this. Listen to what John said in, verse, in chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And that's the heart of it, right? Just like God loved us, we ought to love others. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What's one of the evidences that we are the people of God? How we love one another. If you have love for one another. 1 John 3.10. By this, is, uh, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not pr- uh, practice righteousness, righteousness is not of God. I could stop and preach on that one all day long. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Isn't that powerful? That's how important this concept of love. It ought to exude from those who are believers. We ought to, we should, we have been commanded to love the brethren. Yes, love our enemies, love those who despitefully use us, but in particular, love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 122. Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You get the picture of what God's asking us to do? What ought to be exhibited in the life of a believer? It is true, genuine love for the brotherhood. Yes, we're going we're gonna to bicker and fight. Who, what siblings don't, right? But siblings don't disagree from time to time. But in the end, we ought to always love one another. If that's not, if that's not evident among the people of God in the house of God, then we're in desperate trouble. We should love one another. Now, Paul goes on. He doesn't stop there because he begins to show us in, this same, in these same two sentences what this love looks like. Some of the characteristics of this love. True love 
True Christian love abhors evil. Look at what he says. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. We ought not to coddle what is evil. We ought not to get as close as we can to what is evil without crossing the line. Isn't that how we try to do it sometimes? How far can I go and it not be sin? That's the wrong question to ask. If you're asking that question as a person who claims to be a follower of Christ, then there's something spiritually wrong inside of you. We ought to be like God in our character and we ought to abhor the things that God abhors. We ought to hate evil. Really comes from a compound word. Uh, one, it would be enough just to say the word, stegeo, to hate. But Paul adds a preposition on the front of that, which is apa, and it means away from. So it's, it's this idea of casting off all evil and hating all evil. We ought not to even come close to entertaining evil. I get it. I'm not perfect and you're not perfect. And I fail and you fail. But the bent of the heart of a believer who has the love of God in his heart is to abhor all things that are evil. And Paul even goes further than that for us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 11. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Call evil what it is, right? Stand for the truth of God's word. Don't bow down to the spirit of this age. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse one? Don't be conformed to the spirit of this age, to this world. And what is the world asking us to do today? It's asking us to conform to a particular kind of evil that God has called an abomination. And if we are truly the people of God who have genuine love for those that are around us, true love speaks truth to evil. True love speaks truth to error. And yes, we speak that truth in love, but we stand firm on the truth of God's word. We would not let our children, why do we tell them don't play in the road? Because we love them and we don't want them to die, right? We, if we truly love people, we will share with them the truth of God's word and we will stand firm on those things that God deplores and hates, <coughs> excuse me, which is all sinfulness. Listen to what Proverbs 8.13 says. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. You know, the Bible tells us God is love, right? It is from God that we know what love is. There's not some standard outside of God of love and God measures up to that standard. No, the standard for love is inherent in the character and the being of God. And it's because of him we know what love is. But that same God of love is a God who deplores evil. And we ought to love the things that God loves and we ought to hate the things that God hates. And true love does that. 
Not only that, true love also clings to what is good. Look at that next phrase. Hold fast to what is good. The word that is behind this idea of clinging is a word that means to be glued together, right? So it's like putting super glue on you. You know how these crazy people do? They put the super glue on their hands and protest and they stick it to these uh, works of art in these in these uh, museums. Have you seen that on the news? And they do those kinds of crazy things or they, they'll take their hands and they'll glue it to the pavement, right? In protest of climate change or whatever it is they're in protest of. Well, what God is saying is for you to put super glue on your hands and you to wrap your hands around what is good. Well, how do we know what is good? We know it because we find it in God. What did Jesus say? There is none good but God. And how do we know who God is? We know who God is from the revelation of God in his word to us. He reveals his character. He reveals his goodness to us, does he not? So we find what is good in God. We find what is good in the word of God. And we are to cling to what is good. We are to grab hold of it with all of our might and never let it go. That ought to be the heart of a true believer who's been impacted by the love of God is that we, we, we hold hard to what is good. Isn't that what, what Paul told us at the beginning of this chapter when he tells us that we ought not to conform to this world? Look what he says in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Listen, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We find it in God through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our life and the desire of our heart is to cling to God and to cling to what is good. That's what true love demonstrates in the life of a believer. Not only that, Paul goes on to say that true love exhibits brotherly affection. Now, Paul, in this section of Scripture, uses three words, and the prefix of all three of those words, we'll encounter another one at the end, that have the philo uh, prefix on the word. And we know that word to mean to be friendly or to be affectionate or kind. We hear it in terms like one that's used in this passage. The very first phrase in this passage is te philadelphia. Well, you know Philadelphia, right? We have a city named Philadelphia, and what do we call that city? What is the, 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 the slogan? The city of brotherly love. So that's the incorporation, that's the, what encompasses this word. And so Paul uses that idea two times in this verse and one time at the end of this uh, section. So twice he tells us in this passage, it's almost redundant what Paul is saying because the word in the ESV, the phrase brotherly love is from another word that has this philo prefix on it. So he's really saying the same thing a couple of different ways for emphasis. And he's telling us that you and I, as, as children of God, should love one another with the love of family. I get it. Your family may be like my family sometimes, right? And it's not always loving, right? Some of us have had family in the past, and it wasn't a real good experience for us. 
But I'm telling you, there's a heavenly father and there's a spiritual family that ought to exhibit what true, perfect family love looks like. God has demonstrated that to us, right? In Christ Jesus. And he is expecting you and I who have been redeemed by the Holy Spirit to love one another with brotherly love. That idea of familia. We are family. We, we, you remember we talked about it before. We are knitted together. We're united to get one another in Christ Jesus. And we ought to treat one another that way. We ought to have a family feel in this place, in every other place that calls themselves the, the body of Christ. We ought to love one another as, as brother and sisters in Christ. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke older, uh, an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. You see that sense of family that Paul has? It's all the way through Paul's theology. It's all the way through the theology of the Bible. We are a family of faith, and we ought to love one another like a family of faith. <clears throat> and if that's not who we are, then there's something wrong with us, Right? There's something wrong in the house of God if we don't love one another like we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We should love one another as a family. Listen to Galatians 6 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. That oikia, that home has to do with the idea of people being related to one another, living in community as a family. And he's translated that picture into the family of faith. We ought to be people related to one another in Christ Jesus, living as community in family and united by the blood we share, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord. If that's not how we look, then there's something wrong with us. That ought, people, when they come in here, they ought to see family. They ought to see us loving on one another and caring for one another in a familial kind of way. And then he goes on, the last element of this idea of love, or this ethic of love. The, Christian, the, the true Christian love values others. Now the ESV says, outdo one another in showing honor. Behind that idea of, of outdoing one another is a word that means lead the way. I, I put it this way, be trailblazers in showing honor to other people. What do we want to do in our society? We want to lift ourselves up, right? We talked about this before, right? You know, I look at Brett and I say, man, I'm better than Brett, right? I can do things, I can do a whole lot of things better than Brett. If I was down there watching him uh, clear that fence line yesterday, I said, man, I'd have done it this way or I'd done it that way, right? Because my way is always the better way. I know you guys don't think that way, but I think that way, right? That's why we get in the arguments that we get, because we think we're, our way is the better way, right? And your way is the inferior way. Now, I, I get it. There may be some truth to that in some, some areas. But what is the Christian ethic? The Christian ethic is we are to be humble, not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Because why? Because all of us at the foot of the cross are the same. 
Every one of us are rebellious wretches who deserve God's wrath, but God in Christ has redeemed all of us from that same state. And God has gifted every one of us. You remember Paul talked about that last time. That's where he said, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. I've given all of you gifts. You're all part of the same family of faith. Go out of your way to honor other people. Give them the better seat. Isn't that what Jesus said? Right? Don't come up here and you take the better seat. You let someone else have the better seat. Think of others before you think of yourself. But what is our society to do? Our society drives home this idea that we ought to think of ourselves first. Right? Because everybody out there is the problem. And we need to think of ourselves first, right? God says we ought to honor other people. We ought to think of them and go out of our way to honor them. Almost to the point that we sacrifice ourselves in service to show honor to other people. Isn't that Jesus' moral ethic? What did he tell those people in the first century? If this Roman soldier comes up to you and tells you to carry his stuff... One mile, which was the law, what do you do? You carry it two miles, right? If someone comes and asks for your coat, you give them your coat as well. Go above and beyond to honor other people. That's the ethic of true Christian love. That we love with a genuine heart, just like God's love does. That we hate the things that God hates. We abhor evil and we cling to the things that God loves. We cling to good. We love one another like family. And we go out of our way to honor others. That's the ethic of Christian love. Love the brotherhood. And then Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us this ethic of Christian service, which again, I think comes under the umbrella of this main topic of love. It's out of our love for God and it's out of our love for one another that we serve God, right? And we serve one another. So Paul gives us a picture of this ethic of Christian service in verses 11 through 12. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And really, this, this harkens back again to this idea of Romans chapter 12 in, this high, uh, in, in, chapter, in verse 6. You remember Paul told us, if we have these spiritual gifts, let us use them. If God has redeemed us and he's gifted us and he's indwelt us, let us be fruitful for the kingdom of God in service to the kingdom of God, in service to, to others, in particular those who are of the family of faith. And so true Christian service is diligent. I get that from that first phrase where he says, don't be slothful in zeal. Now, Paul, Paul didn't give us a, a perfect picture of what he means by don't be per don't be slothful in zeal zeal toward what well the implication is zeal in the spirit for the service of the lord if you read the rest of that sentence and so what is paul saying about this idea of christian service the first thing i think he is saying is don't be lazy in your christian service don't 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 sit on the pew right on, on or to put it in a sports analogy don't sit on the bench Get on the playing field. Get in the game. Do what it is that God has gifted you to do. 
Be, be zealous about doing that. Guess what? I've said this before. You don't need my permission to serve God. You understand that? You don't need the permission of anybody in this room to serve God. God's called you to service. God's gifted you for service. Be about serving the Lord. Be diligent in doing what it is that God's called you. Be proactive in serving the Lord. If you see, we'll talk about needs in just, a, in just a moment. If you see a need, guess what? If you can meet that need, do it. You don't have to ask permission, right? If you can't meet that need, then come to the church, come to the leadership, come to the family of faith and say, hey, there's someone in need. I can't meet it by myself. Will you help me? And by golly, we ought to, right? Be diligent in our service to the Lord. He goes on to say true Christian service is passionate. Look at the, the next phrase. Be fervent in spirit. Now, some translations, depending on what translation you have, spirit may be in a capital letter with a capital S or maybe in a little lowercase s, as in spirit, the inner man, or as in spirit, the spirit of the Lord. I, I think it could be either way, grammatically. It depends on um, the translator's choice as to how they uh, interpret that and, and reflect it in their translation. But I think it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and, right? Isn't that really what Paul is saying us? Because of the spirit that God has indwelt us with, we ought to be passionate on fire for the service of God in the way that God has gifted us. You don't have to be passionate in, in, in service to the Lord in the way God's gifted me because you're not me, right? I have to be zealous and passionate in the thing that God's gifted me to do. You ought to be zealous and passionate in the, God, in the thing that God has gifted you to do. But all too often, what do we do? We're just like Moses. We, we give God all the excuses in the world as to why I can't do what it is that you've called me to do. We also need to remember what God said to Moses. Who made your mouth? Right? Who gave you the gift? Who made your hands and your feet and gave you a brain? It is God, and if God gifted you and called you, he will equip you to do what it is that he's asked you to do. So don't give any excuses. Just get busy about doing what God has called you to do. And you don't have to come before a business meeting to do that. You don't have to come before the, the board of deacons to do that. Now, if you want to be a pastor, then you need to be ordained by the church, right? If you want to be a deacon, you need to be ordained by the church. But if you want to just serve, and that's the gift God's given you, by all means, like Paul said, use that gift in service. You don't have to ask. Just do it. And be zealous in spirit to do it. And then he goes on to say, true Christian service is always unto the Lord. That's the last phrase in verse 11. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. That's what God's called every Christian to do. You realize that? Paul is not giving a, a, a um, speech to only those elite special forces Christians. Okay, He had not gathered the best of the best together and says, hey, this is what you guys need to do. No, what is he saying? He's saying to, hey, Jew, hey, Gentile in the church of Rome, hey, Jew, hey, Gentile in the church of friendship, Serve the Lord. Not just in this facility, 
in your life, every day. Young people, your life right now, if you're a follower of Christ, ought to be about serving God in whatever capacity God's called you to serve. You don't have to be the one standing on the stage or, sitting by, or standing behind a lectern, but every single Christian has been gifted by God to be about serving him. And your life ought to be centered around kingdom ministry in some way. It ought to dictate where you go to school, why you go to school. It ought to dictate to the best of its ability why it is that you do what you do. I don't care who you are. If you, we don't do this anymore, right? Pump gas at a gas station. I was about to say that. We do it ourselves. Nobody has that job where they get out and pump gas. I don't care what it is. If you drive a garbage truck, then guess what? God has called you to that place for that reason, for that time. Serve God as a garbage truck driver. That's what God's asked us to do. If we would do that, if that would be the center of our life, no matter who we are, no matter where we are, then we will be obedient to what God has called us to be. We've got to understand that. Yes, we all have dreams and aspirations. As pastors, we have dreams and aspirations. As individual human beings, we have dreams and aspirations. But all those dreams and aspirations ought to be wrapped up in a bow, handed over to the Lord and say, here are my dreams and aspirations. Now, Lord, you show me what I need to do. And we ought to serve God where God has planted us in the manner he has gifted us. And if our life is not reflecting that, then we are falling short in what God's called us to be and do. Then he, he goes on in this, uh, in this passage. True Christian service has an eye for eternity. Look at the next phrase. Rejoice in hope. Well, what hope is he talking about? That eternal hope that one day everything that God has said about us will come to fruition in the eschaton when Christ comes again, that we will be glorified, that we will spend an eternity with him, that we will be raised from the dead. And we have our eye toward the prize, as Paul would say, right? We're looking toward what God has told us he's going to do. We live in light of that hope, and that ought to change the way we look at the world around us because we have ever before us this hope in Christ Jesus. So no matter the circumstances around us, I can be faithful to God because I know what God has called me to and what God has promised me, and he's going to be true to his word, and I should have an eye toward eternity in my service. Man, that'll change your whole outlook on life, won't it? Change your whole outlook at your job, won't it? Because who cares if you got an old, rude, hateful boss? I'm not serving for him. I'm serving the Lord, and I'm rejoicing in the hope that is to come, and I just have to pass through this world in the meantime, right? And so the Lord, uh, Paul goes on to say, be patient in tribulation. True Christian service patiently endures. We've seen this in Revelation more than one time, right? Endure patiently, patiently endure. Really, uh, the, the, it's a, another compound word in the Greek. The Greek, Greeks like to use compound uh, words in their, in their language. And I think it brings emphasis to these uh, words. The root word has to do with this idea of standing under or, or, or standing or existing. Uh, meno, uh, existing or living. 
and the preposition on the word means to be under. It's hupo. Uh, it means to be under. So it's really to stand or live under this pressure. And so when you put all that together, the, the, the implication is uh, tribulation is what's squeezing you. That's what the word tribulation has to, has to do with. Uh, some, someone put it like this. It's when, when you're between a rock and a hard place. All right, for our vernacular today, when you're pressed in on all sides from within and from without because of your faith in Christ, tribulation comes upon you. What does God say? He says, remain under. Persevere is what God says. That's what he's asked us to do. It's not a matter of if tribulation or pressure is going to come in your life. Most of us, but one or two, have lived long enough in this life to know that sometimes it seems as though it's one pressure after another pressure in life, right? And what's God asking us to do? Stay the course. Stay true. Endure till the end. How can I do that? How can I be like John in Patmos? How can I be like Peter and say, Lord, you know, hey, don't crucify me the same way the Lord was crucified me. Turn me upside down. My heart's crying out. Don't crucify me at all. Right? Isn't that why your heart's crying out? How can I do that? How can those people do that? Because the Holy Spirit that indwelt them gave them the ability to do that. And the Holy Spirit who indwells you is the same Holy Spirit who indwelled them. And it's the same Holy Spirit that can give you the power to endure the pressure of tribulation. Why? Because you don't have your eye on the pressures that are before you. You have your eye on the hope that is set before you. That's what true Christian service looks like. We endure even, as John told those believers in the letters to the churches, even to the point of death, if that's what it means. I get it. That's easy preaching, hard living. I understand that. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give us that ability to endure even to that bitter end of giving our lives for the Lord if it's so called of us to do. And then look at the last part of this idea of the ethic of Christian service. True Christian service is grounded in prayer. Look what he says at the end of that. Be constant in prayer. Hey, that's the only way I can endure through tribulation, right? Is to be constant in prayer and rejoice in that hope that's set before me. That's what God's asking. And Paul, and, and the Bible told us that in other places. Pray without ceasing, right? And everything, give thanks. Prayer is an important spiritual tool, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. It is, one of the, it is one of the ordinary means of grace to, to speak like the Puritans used to speak. This idea of being constant and continual in prayer. And I'll have to say to my Lord, forgive me because I've not always been constant in prayer. But didn't Jesus, after all, say my house ought to be a house of prayer? Didn't Jesus, after all, illustrate to us what it meant to be constant in prayer? How many times do we read that Jesus went off a little further by himself and he spent hours in prayer? It's like Martin Luther said one time, or at least his accredited would say, he says, man, I got a whole lot to do today, so I need to spend at least four hours in prayer today. And most of us would say, man, I got a whole lot to do today. I got to skip prayer and get on to it, right? We got it all reversed and backwards. And we put that on ourselves, don't we? We put those demands on ourselves. 
And what we ought to do is be more like Jesus and go out by ourselves in that quiet place and spend time in prayer, seeking after God, listening to God, pouring our heart out before the Father. Be constant in prayer. And it's through that ordinary means of grace, it's through that relational aspect of Christianity that God in the Holy Spirit empowers us to do what it is that God's called us to do. It's how he encourages us to be faithful to the end. It's how he opens our eyes up and enlightens our mind to the truth of his word. It's when we're constant in prayer. So if you're like me, you need to confess to the Lord that you're not constant enough in prayer. And you, like me, need to ask the Lord, please help me to be more of a prayer warrior for you. And that leads us to the final ethic. So we've seen the ethic of Christian love. We've seen the ethic of Christian service. And Paul concludes in verse 13, I believe, with the ethic of Christian charity. Listen to what he says in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So first, true Christian charity cares for the needs of the saints. Now listen, that doesn't mean we don't care for the needs of other people in general, right? After all, here at Friendship, we have next door a place and a means by which we attempt to care for the needs of others, whether they're saints or not saints, right? But Paul is saying, in particular, we ought to care for the needs of the saints, Our brothers and our sisters ought not live in a constant place of want or need. Now, when I say want, I mean lack in the sense that they don't have what they need to survive in life. And it's our responsibility as believers in Christ to care for the needs of one another. After all, isn't that why the deacons were initially set up? What was going on? There was a, there was a battle between the, the Hellenistic and, and the outright Jewish uh, widows that were there. And one felt like they were not getting their needs met as they need to be met. And they called up these six gentlemen to be those proto-deacons to serve. And to meet the needs of those that were there. And God's called all of us. If you just look at the the first century church in the book of Acts, what did they do? The Bible says they had all things in common. And that that doesn't mean that they were communists, right, or socialists. It just means that their heart was so filled with love for God and love for the brotherhood that they took the things that they had and they shared with, with them with the church so that the needs of those in the church community could be met. And the God's not telling us we got to sell everything we have and live as hermits, all right, and live in poverty. But what God is saying to us is we, as the followers of Christ in the family of faith, ought to care for the needs of one another. If our brother is in need, then we ought to try to meet that need. Now, sometimes that looks like, let me help you help yourself get to a place where you can meet your need, right? It's like that old saying, if you give a man a fish, then you meet that need for a day. But if you teach him how to fish, then he can meet that need for a lifetime, right? 
Sometimes that's what it looks like to meet a need. We not only meet the immediate need, but we help meet that greater need of some deficiency in their life that's causing this immediate need. And we help educate them and and minister to them and equip them to meet that need for themselves in a legitimate way. But we ought not let our brothers and sisters in Christ live in need. Now that doesn't mean... it, it may mean that, hey, we help you get a Pinto instead of a, a you know, a, a, a Mercedes, right? That's not what it's about. We meet the need. It might not be the, what, the, the thing you want. And sometimes that's where we live our life and what we want, right? And we think that God hadn't blessed us unless we have exactly what it is we want. Well, God didn't, God didn't say that to us, did he? He said he'll meet our needs. Well, my need might be satisfied with bologna when I want a T-bone, Right? So we need to understand that in this dynamic of being charitable to the saints. But we ought to meet one another's needs. That'll be part of what we do as believers in Christ. And then the last part of this phrase is to to seek hospitality. And this is that third uh, philo uh, word that we have here. The the root or the the prefix is, is the philo to friendly, charitable, if you will, loving, and has this familial kind of love wrapped up in it. And, and the root word in this is the, where we get the word xenophobia. Okay. So in a really literal, wooden way, it would be love strangers. Now in the context it's talking about here is love strangers of the family faith. And it really would make sense in Paul's day because there were no Motel 6 that left the light on for you in Paul's day, right? So if you're traveling... Especially as a believer, if you're traveling, coming into a a, a city or an area that's not your home, it would be a great need to have somewhere to lay your head at night, right? And so what Paul is saying in that sense, we ought to be hospitable to those who are in particular in this context, brothers and sisters in Christ, and offer them that need that, and to meet that need in, in their life and be hospitable to them. And don't be standoffish just because we might not know who they are. I get it in today's society. You know, there was a day when hitchhiking was a, an acceptable means of transportation, right? Where people, that's how they decided, hey, I'm going to get from here to there by hitchhiking. And there was a day when folks would stop and pick them up and carry them along. That's a form of hospitality. But in our day, you better be careful stopping alongside the road and picking up somebody you don't know, right? Now, I do it occasionally when I feel that prompting to do it. But we do have to be careful with that today, don't we? What's the Bible tell us? It tells us to be wise as serpents, the harmless as doves. So I get it. We need to be wise in our culture and in our day because of the dangers that are out there. But we still, to the best of our ability, ought to exhibit hospitality. And I think that's a trait that Again, that we talked about before, it's somewhat incumbent of Southerners, right? We generally, typically, tend to be hospitable kind of people. But what is Paul saying in this passage? He doesn't just say this kind of characteristic ought to be something that occasionally happens. Look what he says. He says, seek. The literal word there is to run after, to pursue hospitality. To go out of our way to be hospitable to people even if we don't know those people. And again, 
wise as serpent, harmless as doves, right? And I'm not saying to you women, go out and, you know, by yourself, pick up a hitchhiker on the side of the road. No, don't do that, okay? That's craziness. But I am saying to all of us as individuals and human beings, God in Christ has shown us a level of love and hospitality that we do not deserve. And we ought to show a level of love and hospitality to those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ at a minimum. And even to those who are our enemies, those who persecute us and mistreat us. Now, I'm not saying you got to let them come spend the night in your house. No, I'm not what I'm saying. We ought to show them some level of hospitality. Now, does that mean that we, we always agree with what they say and we have to bow down to their belief system and worldview? No, it does not. Why? Because what does love do? It abhors evil, right? Anyway, that's the end of this section of Scripture. And so I think Paul is reminding all of us that when we call ourselves Christians, when we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, y'all heard me say this before, there is no concept in God's Word that says to a person, you can get your heavenly ticket punched and you live a life that is in direct opposition to the character of God. What has Paul just told us in this section? And he's going to tell us more about this in the remaining sections. If you're a follower of Christ, it impacts how you live. It impacts how you treat other people. And we ought to reflect the character of God as the children of God. And if that's not happening in our life, then there's something spiritually wrong inside of us. And we need to go to the Father and say, help me see, change me, make me be more like you. Let me be obedient to you in this life that you've given me. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for this time that you've given us in your word. And Lord, when I say those things that I just said, I always look back at my life and know that I'm not always obedient to what it is you've called me to be and called me to do. And so I'm the first one to come to that throne of grace and say, Lord, I have failed and I need your help to be better, to be more like you. Show me what that looks like in my life, Lord. And Lord, there may be those who are sitting under the sound of my voice today that they've never experienced this love of Jesus Christ. And therefore, they don't know how to exhibit the love of Christ because they've never experienced the love of Christ. And I'm asking you today, Lord, for those who are spiritually lost, those who are spiritual orphans, those who are lacking true family, that today through the person of the Holy Spirit that you would draw them to yourself, you would draw them to Christ Jesus and that they could come to faith in Christ and they can experience the love of God for the very first time in their life. They can be redeemed and transformed and become a part of the family of faith. So Lord, you have your way and your will with us in these next few moments.
Help us to be obedient to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.